are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. This week, we were lucky enough to chat to Professor Raymond Robertson. Raymond is the Helen and Roy Rue Chair in Economics and Government within the Department of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service. He's also the director of the Mosbacher Institute for Trade, Economics, and Public Policy at Texas A&M University. He's a research fellow at the Institute for the Study of Labor in Bonn, Germany, and a senior research fellow at Mission Foods Texas Mexico Center. But long before all of this, he was an economics professor at McAllister College, a small liberal arts school in Minnesota, where I also happened to be an undergraduate student at the time and happened to be enrolled in some of his courses. At the time, I remember some of his research was focused on whether the NAFTA trade agreement had led to higher wages for Mexican garment workers, and he's been studying working conditions in the apparel industry for over 20 years. So we wanted to kick off this episode, part one of our conversation, with some more expansive and reflective questions, like, why have working conditions in the garment industry remained interesting to him over the years? And how have his research questions evolved? We then get into some of his more recent research, which looks at data from Better Factories Cambodia to evaluate how working conditions correspond to factory closure rates. Are more socially compliant factories more or less likely to go out of business? And what can we make of his findings? In part two of our conversation, Raymond poses the question, are workers and factory managers aligned on their priorities? When it comes to social compliance, do they agree about what's the most important? This leads the two of us to share some anecdotes about our own experiences and to some much more fundamental questions. Like, what kind of assumptions do we as sustainability advocates make about what workers want? Are those assumptions safe to make? Are they universally applicable? And if not, what does this mean for social compliance audits? Is data from social compliance audits a reasonable proxy for improved worker well-being? And if we agree that social audits are a necessary but not sufficient condition, what's next? Our episodes this week are thanks to our collaboration with Jazz at Fabric. The Fabric project is commissioned by the German Federal Ministry for Economics, Cooperation and Development and supports the Asian textile industry in its transformation towards fair production for people and the environment. Raymond was a speaker on the third edition of GIZ Fabrics' online seminar series called Getting Through the Crisis Together, Asian Dialogues on Sustainability in the Textile and Garment Industry. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to grow the conversation at Manufactured underscore podcast. Or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation for our homepage. To find out more about the GIZ Fabric Project and the seminar series Getting Through the Crisis Together, Asian Dialogues on Sustainability in the Textile and Garment Industry, check out the links we've put in our show notes. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Why don't we start with some basics? How did you end up researching working conditions in the garment industry in the first place? Why do you think that this is a topic that has held your, 
your research interests for such a long time. And how do you think that the types of research questions that you have worked on related to this topic have evolved over the years? Yeah, thank you very much um, you know, for the question. I, I do think about this a lot because it seems like a very weird area for me to be concentrating in in some ways, right? But the truth is, you know, I grew up in a, a household where my dad was actually the HR manager for the city of St. Paul. So human resources is something I've been thinking about. And then my mother also worked for the city and she was designing programs to help get people out of poverty and help get people into work. So I kind of grew up in this culture of public policy designed to help people get into jobs and get out of poverty. And so I knew I wanted to be in public policy. So as an undergrad, I studied political science. And then uh, after I finished that major, I went into economics and fell in love with it. And it was right at that time when people were discussing the North American Free Trade Agreement before it was signed or anything, right? And so I had a very strong interest in Latin America. And so this was a big deal that combined uh, my interest in international trade and labor. So it was how do trade agreements in particular, but how does trade in general affect workers and specifically can trade help lift people out of poverty? So I, I ended up getting my um, undergraduate degree after doing like an honors thesis in kind of NAFTA's effect on workers. And then I went to Mexico for a year um, on a Fulbright. And on that Fulbright, I realized that everybody running the government was an economist. So the president of Mexico at the time was an economist <laughs> and the cabinet were all economists. And I said, well, if I'm going to do public policy, I should do economics. And so I uh, ended up going to the University of Texas at Austin for my PhD in economics. And I had amazing advisors. I had Gordon Hansen, who did international trade, and he was focusing on workers at the time. And then I also had Dan Hammermesh, who literally wrote the textbook on labor demand, how uh, labor demand in factories affects wages and employment and workers. And so uh, I had this great foundation with these great advisors. And uh, as I went through time, I was doing kind of different projects on labor and trade. And what happened was someone at the World Bank at the time, Amy Lewinstra, who I don't know if you've ever met her, but she's amazing. She's just one of the most amazing people I've met in my career. But she called me up and said, you know, we're starting this awesome new program, you know, called Better Factories Cambodia, and we're collecting all these data. And uh, would you like to, you know, be the first to really analyze these data? If you can get them programmed in, they're not in electronic format, but if you could get them in electronic format, uh, you'd be the first one to really analyze them. So I was at McAllister at the time, right, Kim? And I put together a team of three McAllister students and sent them to Geneva. And they spent the summer in Geneva coding up the Better Factories Cambodia data. And uh, ever since then, I've been really hooked on, you know, Better Factories Cambodia in particular, but then it expanded out, right? So then they were focusing on apparel and the working conditions in the apparel factories. And so I started learning more and more about that. And it's been really an amazing, um, you know, place for me to study. It's been really great. So I'm curious, um, you know, you've been researching issues around labor and the textile industry for, well, I guess since the early, late 90s, early 2000s. And, but even those two, well, actually three words or four words, labor issues in the textile industry, that's pretty big. And I'm, I'm curious kind of how the types of research questions that you've worked on 
have evolved over your career and what has sort of driven this? Yeah, so the that's a great question. So originally, my research was really in between sort of the micro and the macro, oddly enough, right? So it's really focused on how these macroeconomic events affect workers sort of at the individual levels. So it's right in that sort of in-between area. I did work also on kind of changing border enforcement and, you know, things and going on in, in firms like technology and stuff. So it was kind of right in the middle. So Originally, that was really my focus, was how trade agreements more broadly and, and macro policies are affecting wages and employment. And once I got into the Better Factories Cambodia, I really started taking a more micro-micro effect approach, right? So what's going on within the factories? How is policy within the factories then affecting employment and wages? And, and as you know, as you both know, that I mean, we say employment and wages, but the dimensions of working conditions and the workers' experience are are more broad than that. I mean, they're much more uh, nuanced. And so I started learning about all the different dimensions of uh, the workers' experience in the factory and kind of how management would relate to the workers and how they shape those policies through HR policies in particular. Um, and so my over time, right, just to give you a more specific answer to your question, is that the research questions have evolved from the sort of macro approach to the more micro approach. Um, and why has that happened? Well, uh, there's kind of a joke about economists about, you know, someone sees uh, someone on the street looking very distressed, like, oh, no, you know, I lost my glasses and we help me look for them. And the person says, oh, yeah, where'd you where'd you lose them? They're like, oh, I lost them over here. And the person leaves the helper leaves and goes over and looks over down the street under the street lamp and says, why are you looking down there? He's like, well, this is where the light is. <laughs> like, and that's kind of the economist, typical economist story is that where you go where the data are, right? Where there's data availability. And so that's, uh, you know, once we realize that there are these really good data coming out of uh, Better Factories Cambodia and then better work at the factory level, it really does direct your research in response. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting point about, and we're going to get into this more in a minute, because it's one of the things that we were really curious to talk to you more about is like, we have a lot of questions and things that we encounter, but they may or may not be answerable questions. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, <laughs> and so like, how do you strike a balance between you know, the data that you have available and the questions you can actually answer versus on the other hand, I think acknowledging that maybe the data sort of like either answers the wrong question or answers not quite, I, I, wrong question is too strong, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. That I was actually struggling with that when I was looking at uh, last month when I was finishing up a paper on Bangladesh. And and I'll, I'll just tell you the story of kind of the, because it was a parallel <laughs> Uh, related uh, Bangladesh, and we were looking at the effect of the change in the EU policy in 2011 that basically shifted Bangladesh's exports from, um, you know, between knit and woven. And uh, the shift between knit and woven makes a big difference because, you know, one is a lot higher priced than the other. And so we actually saw a discrete price shock. And the theory that I had, because it kind of economics always kind of starts with this theory, was that the increase in those prices, just because of the shift in materials, right, it's the same kind of factories, um, would increase wages, right, or it could, right, if the, mm. if the increase in prices got passed through to the workers. But the tricky thing was, was that the 
theory that I was working with, and I'm a big fan of, and I'd love to elaborate more on this, but the theory was that the change in prices in the apparel industry, and this is going to sound very radical, but the changes in prices in apparel industry should affect the wages of women throughout the economy, not just in apparel. It should affect all women's wages. And what we find, and I'm going to answer your question, but because I know this seems like a tangent, but what <laughs> no, we find that was that the gap between men's women, men and women's wages in Bangladesh, as right around the time of that shock, goes from like 60% down to like 8%. It just throughout the entire economy, right? So the male-female gap really does close. The problem though is that you can't match up the change in apparel prices with economy-wide wages in a way that's not just like two observations. So the data don't fit that hypothesis very well. And so what do you do? That was your real question, right? What do you do when the data don't really match? And you kind of do the best you can. You, on the one hand, you answer the questions that you can answer, and then you basically kind of intonate, intonate that this would be, this is what it would look like if we had better data. And that's really the best you can do. The third solution, of course, is to go out and collect kind of the right data that you'd want. And, and I'm doing that on another migration project um, in the U.S., right? You can try and collect the right kind of data. But even then, right, that's very expensive a lot of times. And it's very involved, right, in terms of time. So it is difficult. That is a real challenge, right? Finding the right data is, is consistently a struggle. And I have lots of experiences working and living in other countries. So before 2017, I mostly live in China. So when we talk about the data in garment industry, I mostly think about the experiences I had in China, which is often you, I mean, people would naturally get involved, get the government or the industry association involved to have one more access to the data. Because I take an example, if we talk about environment pollution, then the Bureau of Environment, they have all sorts of data. Let's not talk about the quality of the data, just to talk about the data. <laughs> Is that the reality that we might have very limited access or limited resources when we think about collecting data from a, from a location or a country for, this, for the government industry? Yeah, that's an excellent point. I always go to the government statistical websites first. And part of the issue, for example, that we had in uh, Bangladesh was that their census in um, 2000, uh, in 2000 or even 1995, which is what we needed as a baseline, didn't include the variables we wanted, right? They had very, they didn't include apparel industry separate. They only included manufacturing. So it was impossible to kind of get that baseline. The government is always the first place we would go. But even then, right? I mean, I've known a lot of these people in government, even in Cambodia's government as well, right? And they're wonderful people. <laughs> and you know, they're, they're dedicated, the bureaucrats, the technocrats. They want to do a really good job, but they don't always have the same questions, right? They don't have the same kind of uh, perspective that would lead them to ask the same kinds of uh, data collection questions. So... It's not always a great match. And that's why I love opportunities to talk with governments and say, you know, this is also kind of interesting. <laughs> if you collected data on this, that'd be great. I mean, in Canada, what people always ask me, right, if I was doing North American research, why didn't I include Canada? And I said, well, Mexico's data is so much better than Canada's data because Mexicans really understood kind of the kind of questions that I was interested in. And they were asking data collection questions to collect that. And the Canadians were not doing that. They had a very 
a very different approach to data. So you just don't work with Canada then, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of what happens. It, it's interesting because we're talking about kind of in a way about data ownership and we're talking now about like the role of government in generating that data. And Jesse, for me, it's funny to, to hear like your perspective on this because like in the world that like I come from, so, you know, the, what always sort of, well, maybe I share like an anecdote when I was, when I was working in Cambodia as a factory manager, sort of by chance, I got to go to the sustainable apparel coalition meeting in um, the summer of 2019, because it was timed at the same time as ITMA, which is a big machine expo. And the factory that I was managing was specialized in digital dye sublimation. And so I was there like looking at printers and blah, blah, blah. And we were also members of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. And as a result, I got to go. And like, while I was at this meeting, one of the things that like sort of caught me by surprise or caught me off guard was like all these people from brands who were there, like in every meeting I was in, they were like, we need the data. We need the data. Like what's the, what's the like data collection period, the cadence. And like, we can't get our factories to submit their data. We can't, or like the data is not correct or whatever. And I was just really, um, I don't know. Yeah. T- taken aback because in my mind, I was like, okay, well, yes, we need data and like to know sort of where we're at and where we're going, but like the data by itself is not going to change anything. And, and also like, you just need, this was like the skeptic in me, but like, you just need this data as a sustainability department within a brand to sort of like justify your own existence. Um, But it's interesting because like, you know, and that was sort of like, I kind of wondered when we asked you about how your research questions have evolved, if like, because the brands really, I think, control a lot of the factory level data on sustainability performance. And I that was one of the things I was wondering whether you were going to speak to, like whether that's been something that's driven your like research questions in a way, because that's that's the information that's available. Yeah, that's definitely uh, really what got me into this is the availability of the Better Work data in particular. But then since, you know, I've started working a little bit more with brands because I know they have data. I thought you were going to ask the harder question, though, which picking up that point that you <laughs> said was, you know, just because you have the data, it doesn't mean that you're going to do something with it. You know what I'm saying? Yes. That's, <laughs> that, that's a much more. That's why I like being an academic economist, right? Because we're kind of fearless and protected and we can ask any kind of question that we want you know, basically based on what we think is the right question to ask, right? We don't have to worry about um, a lot of these other dimensions. So, but but it is just, just the availability of data is not sufficient, <laughs> you know, just to, to do different things. And that's actually the perfect segue, I think, to your, uh, some of your more recent research, which um, Jesse and I were really interested in because, Um, You know, suppliers often cite low prices, bad purchasing practices by brands as a barrier to improving working conditions on the factory floor. And sort of implicit within this statement, I suppose, is the idea that social compliance has a cost and that because brands are unwilling to pay extra for it, that cost is prohibitive. 
And that's like something we've heard a lot on the show from the suppliers who have come on the show. It's something that I think Jesse and I in different ways, shapes and forms have also said ourselves. And your research kind of really takes on this allegation by looking at whether factories with higher rates of social compliance and therefore presumably better working conditions are in fact more likely to close. So in other words, is social compliance really so expensive that it would make a supplier more likely to go out of business. Can you tell us what you found? Sure. Yeah. So there, I'll start off because you asked me to tell you what I found, and then I can mm. give you more background on kind of the theories if you want. But well, we did take that head on, and we did try to analyze whether or not firms that became more compliant earlier on were more or less likely to, to fail or, or more or less likely to survive. And the surprising thing from our results was that we didn't find any evidence at all of an increased probability of failure or closure. Uh, so that it didn't seem that increasing compliance did not seem to be associated uh, anywhere on any level with uh, a heightened probability of shutting down. We did find some evidence actually on the reverse, that there is some evidence that says if you improve some of these working conditions, um, there is uh, a positive relationship, that you're more likely to survive. Uh, and, and actually, that implies that this increased compliance and the better working conditions might actually be improving factory performance to some degree. And that's one of the reasons I love talking to the two of you, because I love to bother you guys have the real world experience, right? Does that kind of theory make sense? Or is that a, a reasonable story to be telling? But the results did show, right, that it was actually more likely to be uh, improved compliance is more likely to be associated with survival than closure. Yeah, which is interesting, because in many ways, it, it contradicts like a lot of the anecdotal stories that we have heard in some ways, I think. Um, and if I like, if I reflect on, on my own experience, we were a smaller factory. I think in total, the factory had like, I don't know, 700 workers or something like that um, across two different facilities and like that was our challenge was the overhead and the, the like compliance, um, the cost of like, you know, the, the overhead that we had to have on staff in order to remain compliant. And I don't even mean like we would have done business in exactly the same way, even without having the extra resources on staff, but it was the reporting requirements. It was the having to deal with auditing requirements. It was even just paying for the audits. Um, mm -hmm. Like all of those kinds of expenses that were just like two, that were a lot relative to the volume that we were, that we were producing. Yeah, no, and I think that is a critical point, is that there's there's two areas of subtlety that I think are missing from this discussion, not our discussion, we have them in our, the three of us, but in the broader discussion that are really missing. And one is this heterogeneity across factories, right? Is that it's a lot easier for the big factories, the really big factories to engage in this compliance and the reporting and all those things, right? And the smaller factories have a much more difficult time. And without the support either of the buyers or the government or some other organization, right, to cover those costs, 
it, it is very oppressive. It can be very, very difficult for the smaller firms. And I think that that is uh, an aspect that gets overlooked, right? Because I think that in the conversation, people basically assume that all garment factories are the same. And that in the district, in the work that I've done is that uh, I've seen that it's very much not true, that there's a very large difference across factories in terms of size and in a whole bunch of other ranges. The other nuance that I think is really missing from this discussion is that when we say kind of social compliance, right, entre comillas, like, you know, between in quotes or whatever, um, people, that's, it's not one thing. So if you look at the better work instruments, for example, which is the ones I'm most familiar with, but I've also, you know, kind of seen Walmarts and others and some others, you know what I mean? But there's over a hundred, usually a hundred plus different dimensions of working conditions. And so, you know, I think one of the things that gets overlooked is that compliance, when you take an overall average, can be very costly for the firm without any real benefit because you're working on things that don't necessarily improve factory performance per se, right? So like how many fire extinguishers, not that you shouldn't have fire extinguishers, you know what I'm saying? But like having them at this height and doing this and then reporting this and then you know what I mean? There's a lot of things that don't directly feed into factory performance that are just costly that might mitigate risk and they might save lives if there's an accident or a fire. I mean, I'm not saying they're bad things, but it's, I think the discussion would really be helped by focusing and prioritizing and saying, look, in the small factories, these are the things that we can work on that might actually help the firms get better and get bigger. And then, you know, maybe these other things might get less emphasis based on uh, size and costliness, or we're going to have to pay for them, right? I mean, I think that's that's not been brought out in these debates at all. I'm just thinking, is that an also a chicken first or egg first question? Yeah, you see, we yeah, yeah we we kind of study the factories already survived, the factories who cannot survive already wiped out. So we are study factories already survived, and uh, and when we see a factory get a better social compliance, also. Uh, survives better. Basically, are we saying the factory anyway has capacity to apply those social compliance and the cost of social compliance probably already sink into their operational cost and, and averaged into their business already. What I mean is today, if we take a, if we are lucky, we find a factory starting from a smaller scale and growing up into a bigger scale. And at some moment, the factory wants to uh, get a better social compliance. And at that exact moment, how the extra cost will affect their business. And also, I think sometimes we imagine government factories are kind of like the business kind of like even. But actually, it's no, it's quite seasonal. And it's also there is a dependency between brands and factories. So if the brand's financial situation is not very well, then it will affect the factory, the supplier side. So when the social compliance cost is kind of fixed, but the business of the factory is sometimes up, sometimes down, then that also affects the situation of the factories. So the, then the whole thing becomes quite complicated. Chicken first or egg <laughs> first. Is that because they are good anyway? So the social compliance better or something different. <laughs> yeah. So I think you're, you're hundred percent right. It is very uh, subtle. And I, I agree with what you're saying. The, that is a challenge to our work. And the way we tried to address that was we had a census of all the factories 
So whenever any factory opened up, it became uh, observable in the data set. So we could track factories from the time they started. And then we only looked at, to address your specific question about our research, is we only looked at the change in compliance basically between like the first and second uh, observation period so that um, we'd, we'd have that initial change and then we'd look at survival much farther down the line. Because as you note, and I think this is something we did not emphasize enough, uh, but it's an excellent point, is that it's super hard being a garment factory, right? So the garment factories have a really, really hard time. And as a matter of fact, the, the rate of closure overall in any kind of new businesses, right? Most new businesses around the world, they fail, right? I mean, that's just, but in garment factories in particular, right? 33% just generally don't last very long. <laughs> I mean, so it's actually really a very high failure rate in general. And as you know, the brands are always shifting their, uh, purchases across countries. And so that leaves some factories out. And so there's a lot of things, as you mentioned, there's so many things that affect the survival of a factory. And that's why uh, we were really looking for this relationship between increasing compliance early on and actually leading them to close later on. Um, and uh, we didn't find that though, right? We found that the ones that increased their compliance early on lasted longer, right? They're more likely to survive longer. But you're right. There's so many other confounding factors um, that, frankly, I was surprised we found anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because there's so many things that were going on at the same time. But that's an excellent point. One of the things I've been really frustrated about since sort of emerging from my job as factory manager and trying to engage the sustainable fashion landscape has been that I've, I felt like really frustrated that Advocates in the sustainable fashion space, although well-intended, don't, and this is a blanket statement, but at least in my personal experience, don't seem to really understand what drives a factory's costs. Mm -hmm. And for me, at least, like, and I don't think that I am unique in this, but what drove my costs was unexpected fluctuations in demand. And I want to emphasize the unexpected. And the fact that because I was the one, like because we, the factory, were the ones fronting all the costs of production in advance, so paying all the salaries, buying all the fabrics, all the raw materials, you know, we had, we bore, I don't know, I'm, I'm making blanket statements, so I'll just continue, 100% of the, of the, of the financial risk associated with making garments. And what that meant was those costs were sunk. So if I sold, I don't know, to give a very simple example, like let's say those costs were $100 every month and I sold 100 pieces, well, then my cost per piece sold was $1. If I only sold 50, then my cost per piece sold was $2. And so like nothing within the factory four walls had changed. You know, I hadn't gotten more efficient. I hadn't gotten less efficient. I hadn't gotten more compliant. I hadn't gotten less compliant. Like I hadn't done anything. And yet my costs per piece sold had doubled. And it was that when our, mar like when my, when your margins are so small to begin with, like that is how you can really, that is how you really quickly go from making money to losing it. Uh -huh. And so, and so, and I felt like, and so, it was like the fact that 
there were all these unanticipated changes in order volume, which were possible on the brand side because they didn't bear any of the financial risk. It didn't cost them anything because they didn't have any money on the line for those workers' salaries or for those raw materials. It was very easy for them to say, oh, I don't need 100,000, I need 200,000. Or I don't need 100,000, I need 50,000. Because those changes on their side cost them very little. But they cost me a lot. And they affected my bottom line the mo- you know, more than anything else. And that, to go back to then social compliance, that for me as a factory manager was like what very directly created the incentive not to be compliant. Because when I was like shouldering all of that financial risk, like basically my success depended on keeping orders and capacity in equilibrium. And when Mm -hmm. I had no idea what was coming on the order side and brands also had no interest in telling me because they didn't have any money on the line, then the only thing I could do like on the other side, like if you imagine a scale with orders on one side and capacity on the other side, the only thing I could do to keep that equilibrium was to make sure that my capacity was totally flexible. And that's like what created the incentive to subcontract. That's what created the incentive to put people on short-term contracts. That's what created the incentive that in my view led to a lot of these really undesirable results from a, from an ethical or a moral point of view. No, I think that that's an excellent point to be making. And I think it's really, uh, I, I agree with you that I think a lot of people in the space don't appreciate that. I don't think they appreciate the experience of the suppliers generally. I don't think they appreciate the margins or the cost structure. I agree with you 100%. That's why I think the podcast and all the writing that you've been doing is so valuable, right? Why it's so critical to get that out there. I think the, uh, the CSR people within the brands are uh, increasingly aware of that. <laughs> I think they know. And I think that the COVID-19 crisis, particularly with the news that came out about Bangladesh, but also affected many other countries, uh, really brought that into sharp relief, that people really realized that the factories are the ones that were on the line and bearing this increased risk. Part And I've been hearing this ever since, you know, I've been engaged with Better Factories Cambodia as I've been hearing the factory managers, like at the 10th anniversary of Better Work um, at the conference that was in D.C., the factory managers said this. They said, the thing that would help us the most to become compliant is long-term stable commitments from the brands and having these longer-run relationships one of the, right and and having more stability in the orders right and having more skin in the game for, on the side of the brands by saying okay you know we're going to put up you know this much or we're going to guarantee or it's going to we're going to have an order that's not going to fluctuate more than this much and the timing right the timing is you didn't mention that but i think the timing is also critical like we need yeah. this by january and then all of a sudden no 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 <laughs> we need it by december you know what i'm saying like wait a minute you know how am i supposed to do that and i you know i've heard many stories from suppliers say you know why do we have excessive overtime? <laughs> well, because we had to get this order done by December when we thought it was going to have to be due in, in February, right? I mean, two months early is the only way, one way to do that. I mean, do the math. And so stabilizing and smoothing the fluctuations of those orders and the financial risk, I think, is, is really critical. And that makes sense. I also wanted to also come back to that idea of scale, right? Is that if you're a very large factory, you're able to manage that much more easily, right? Because you have reserves. A lot of times the bigger factories also have access to finance um, that the smaller factories don't have, which is another critical aspect, I think. Um, 
And, you know, where are you getting kind of support from if it's not the buyers? If you don't have a parent company, for example, in China, right? If you don't have a parent company in China, you're really a Cambodian factory on your own. The Cambodian government, as I said, has many other things on their mind. And you don't have access to finance necessarily within the country. And you don't have this larger parent group. You're not part of an industrial group. And so it really puts you at a, a severe disadvantage. And I think that what goes underappreciated um, that I was saying before is that when you think about this distribution of factories, is that there are sort of this group of factories that are really struggling and having a hard time maintaining compliance. And lots of people point to them, but they're not getting the help they need. I would be curious to know how basically the distribution of financial risk between brands and suppliers correlates to factory closure rates and also to social compliance. And I have no idea if that's a research question that can be answered. Well, part of the, <laughs> yeah, we tie in three things. I mean, one of the things I'd like to go back to is what Jesse was saying about this chicken and the egg. I mean, I've been kind of careful not to argue for causality, right? I'm not mm -hmm. necessarily suggesting causality because one story is that, you know, the improvements in compliance make you more efficient and more productive and more able to survive. Okay, that's one story. Another story is that you make those uh, changes in compliance early and the fir the buyers then are going to sort of direct towards you, right? You're trying to, it signals you early on that you're going to be a safer factory to work in and therefore you get mm. more and more stable orders, right? That's kind of Chika Oka, you know, is another researcher who works in this area and she's kind of tells that story a little bit. A third story, though, and this is what we, you know, trying to get at your question is uh, there's another one. There's four, I guess. But a third story is, is that the firms that are able to make those investments in the first place are already bigger. Right. Mm -hmm. They already have access to the financing and that might increase their probability of survival later. We tried to kind of deal with that with what are called fixed effects, like controlling for the factory kind of things that are consistent with the factory, but we did break it apart by size. Um, so that's another one. Another, you know, the fourth story is the sharing of financial risk, right? Is that I think the, the brands, somebody within the brands, whether it's the CSR people, if not the purchasing people, I'm not sure the purchasing people know this, but the CSR people seem to know that the factories do struggle, <laughs> You know what I mean? It does, it does require some kind of incentive structure that they have to provide some incentives in order to get higher compliance. So one of those things that they might do is higher prices. It might be more stable orders, but it might be sharing of the financial risk to say, look, okay, we understand that, you know, you're having a hard time. What matters most to you? And then you'd, uh, you'd tell them, you know, how about some stability or how about some backing on the financial side? Uh, upfront for the, cover these upfront costs, right? So maybe they worked out some kind of deal there um, that was associated with the signal to become more compliant at the beginning. I, you know, we don't know which one of those four stories it was, and I don't want to try and overclaim the results of my research. Mm. So that a lot of you know your friends might still be right that if it's the small firms uh, that were more likely to close in the first place, right, and they're less likely to become compliant, maybe they're still closing, but the bigger firms' uh, reduction in compliance overwhelmed that. Or increase in compliance, but reduction in, in closings overwhelmed it. Maybe, I don't know. And on that note, we're going to close part one of this conversation, but be sure to tune in for part two, which we've also released today. And in part two, we get into social compliance audits. 
Is data from social compliance audits a reasonable proxy for improved worker well-being? And if we agree that social audits are a necessary but not sufficient condition, what's next? Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.